people die in the most creative ways and the experienced medical examiners that I work with, they thought they've seen it all and they still are shocked by what they see. I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings, drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? I'm Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths that people take in life. And in today's episode, we will be exploring the path of being a forensic pathologist with Dr. Palu Thirakul. And uh, before I get to that, I just want to apologize to those of you that woke up kind of startled by your podcast feed on Monday. As I mentioned at the beginning of that episode, I just switched my whole feed over to SoundCloud, thanks to the support that I've been getting from you guys on Patreon. And that caused everyone's feeds to come completely refresh and download over uh, or or refresh with over a hundred episodes of the podcast. So if that bothered you in any way, really sorry about that. Hopefully that won't be happening again. Um, And now on to today's episode. So um, Dr. Palu Thirakul is a forensic pathologist, as I said, and this is kind of a part two almost to the episode that we did about um, a medical legal death investigator. So if you recall from that episode, a medical legal death investigator goes out to the body and they have to determine the manner of death. Like, did this person drown? Was this person murdered? Were they not murdered? Was this an accident? Was this not an accident? That's what the medical legal death investigator does at the scene of the body. Now, after that, the body gets taken to uh, Dr. Thiracool and Dr. Thiracool's job as the forensic pathologist is, and as a doctor, is to actually do the autopsy of the body and determine the cause of death. So if someone was murdered, what exactly went down? What took place? Um, were they, and that's, this gets into one of the questions that we talk about in the episode is like, what if there's multiple causes of death? What if you see that there's lots of bruises on the body, but the person's also a drug addict and it's like, well, did they overdose? Were they murdered or beaten to death? Like what happened exactly? So she'll go over all these interesting things about her job like that. She'll go over kind of uh, just fun things about her job. If you want to call it that, like, uh, does she listen to music when she's doing the autopsies? Does she ever talk to the bodies? All that kind of stuff. So um, this should be a pretty interesting one for you. So without further ado, here is Forensic Pathologist. Palu, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. So I'm just going to go ahead and break the fourth wall really quick here for everyone. We are actually redoing this for the second time because we got about five minutes in and I realized that I was completely confused on the terminology that you were using. And the uh, the medical legal death investigator episode that I did with Deneen, the very first question that I asked her, which I realize now that I should have asked you and I'm going to ask you now, is... What is like a medical legal death investigator versus a coroner versus this versus that? And you were using terms um, in the interview that no one will ever hear, uh, like uh, medical examiner and forensic pathologist and this and that. So these are the same person, I'm to understand now. Go over like a medical examiner, a forensic pathologist, and then other terms that people might hear and, and who does what. Sure. I'll sort of start at the beginning. Most people have heard the term medical examiners or medical examiner's office, and they kind of have an idea of what that means. I should start by saying the majority of deaths in the world can be entirely explainable by natural disease, like heart attack or cancer. If that's not the case, that death is considered 
special and it may have some legal implication, that's when a medical examiner's office gets involved. The job of a medical examiner's office is to figure out why and how that person died. How do we know if it, sorry to interrupt really quick, but how do we know if it's special? Because if, if a body is found with no real marks on it and the person is 80 years old, don't we still need you or, or I guess a medical examiner um, to determine, was it an aneurysm? Was it a heart attack? Um, who is determining the cause of death in a non-special case, if not you? Uh, if somebody has been followed for a disease by their own physician for months or years, there's documented history. That physician can sign a death certificate. Oh, wow. Okay. So those cases we'll never see at a medical examiner's office. Now, what are some special kind of deaths? Anything violent, as you know, shooting, drowning, hanging, traffic accidents. Any possible drug overdose is a special death. Deaths in police custody, whether they're being transported to jail, in a squad car, in prison, in jail, those are special. Certain types of deaths while at work are considered special. Construction sites, coal mining, for example. And then, like you mentioned, there's there's some deaths that are sudden and unexpected. A young basketball player dies on the court. No medical history. That is a special type of death. Okay. How about something that kind of blurs these lines? I'm thinking of my grandfather who died when he was 63 and it was uh, determined to be a cardiac arrest. If somebody is in their 60s and they just die is it like it like how do we know how, how did how was it determined that it was a cardiac arrest and not a heart attack or not something else if somebody's in their 60s and they don't have a documented history they could be a very healthy 60 year old with no medical problems as far as we know if they die suddenly then that's considered sudden and unexpected so that technically would be a medical examiner case. Okay, so just because you're older doesn't mean that you're not coming to you. If you're if you're older and you're healthy, um, you you could end up in your office. Right. There are seventy year olds doing Ironman triathlons. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And That's there are young people point. who die unexpectedly too. Those are suspicious deaths. Those ha- have to be looked into. Okay. Cool. So that clears up a lot of stuff. So, um, all right, let's take us through uh, what you actually do and what happens when someone dies. So um, to use like an example of something that recently happened, like recently Prince died, what would happen if in that exact case, like if you were brought Prince's body, do you get brought Prince's body by a death investigator and and they come and they tell you all these things about that they know about Prince or do they like you get this big email with files or like a stack of notes about the body and then you have to sit there and and look at the body. What what happens exactly? Well, typically I'd come into work in the morning and look at the list for the day. It's anyone who's died overnight and Prince might be on that list, for example, and Prince would be on that list because a medical investigator from that office has taken a call from someone, whether it's a hospital or law enforcement, saying that someone died. So someone reported a death. Our investigators are the first line in any medical examiner's office. They take the call, 
They say, okay, what were the circumstances of this person's death? Are they a medical examiner case? Are they a special death? In Prince's case, yes, it's a suspected overdose because he was known to be taking strong pain medication. And so they would accept that case. They would send for transport to go pick up the body from wherever it was and bring it to the medical examiner's office. Then the body would be processed by technicians, photographs taken, any kind of uh, medical devices on the body would uh, be documented and photographed. And then you know, any medical records associated with that person would be faxed over to the medical examiner's office. The investigators would talk to anyone involved in this case, law enforcement, family, friends, acquaintances of the decedent. And they would compile all that information, put it in a file, and have it ready for the medical examiner to review. After reviewing that information, the medical examiner would then start the examination of the body. Okay, so it sounds like you, as the medical examiner, have a pretty like one-on-one -on -one relationship with the investigator, which is what Deneen was. You yourself do not go out of those bounds and talk directly to law enforcement, let's say. It depends. The investigators are specially trained to do this information. They, they truly are investigators. They have medical knowledge. They have knowledge of the law. They have some of them come from a background of law enforcement and they have special training. So they really are the eyes and ears for the medical examiner. It's rare that we need to step beyond the investigator's report and interview people ourselves, though sometimes representatives from law enforcement will attend an autopsy and we can interact with them face to face then. Okay. And could you go over some of the types of things that you already need to know or, or that, that you'll be told um, in that documentation when a body comes to you so obviously i mean you what you said is it stands out totally like an obvious one like does this person typically take a lot of pills um what are other types of things that that will other types of information that will accompany a body um every medical record we can get our hands on we, we are under some pressure to perform an autopsy and render a death certificate as soon as we can so not everything is available at the time that the autopsy is performed, but certainly medical records from any hospitals that person has ever been to. Um, circumstances of the death we get from law enforcement, from emergency medical staff that respond to a 911 call, we get those reports because those people are the first to respond to a residence, for example to say this is how the person was found in bed or slumped over their toilet or on, the, on their face on the floor, what their cardiac rhythm was when EMS gets there, what kind of medical intervention was done in the ambulance to that person, the state they were in when they got to a hospital, if they did get to a hospital, what the medical staff did, and those final moments before they die you know, what happened? What kind of cardiac arrest was it? Was it a ventricular fibrillation? Was it, what, did they just go flatline? These are all the, the medical history that we get. And then additionally, we get things from friends and family. We're not trying to be voyeuristic or nosy. We just need to know certain things. Um, did this person 
have life stressors that may have resulted in a possible suicide? Were they known to take too much medication? Um, did they talk about suicide? You know, these are things that help us determine and form a picture of what we're dealing with. So other than the statements from family and friends, which completely makes sense why you would have to get them, it sounds like everything that you're dealing with is facts. Do you also get subjective information from the investigator? Like, let's say the investigator goes to the house. Um, actually, there was an example that, that Deneen gave where, where she did go to a house and there was a woman that... Um, was thought to have committed suicide and there were um, some marks around her shoulders and the husband was the one saying that she had committed suicide and one of the um, officers that was interviewing the husband was saying i don't know just like the way that he's saying this he doesn't seem quite right um i don't know that it was a suicide would that kind of information come to you or do they want you to be a blank slate that doesn't know that sort of information no, absolutely. We want to know as much as we can. If law enforcement says, you know, the husband was acting, quote, inappropriately, then, you know, we have to take that with a grain of salt, but we can't ignore that information. If our investigator sees something amiss, we trust their judgment and we assume jurisdiction of a case where, you know, they think that maybe this is a medical examiner case, it has to be investigated further. It's not a clear-cut natural, you know, natural death. So we rely very heavily upon the investigators. So you mentioned that all this information has to come in before you can do the autopsy. What kind of a timeline can we be looking at then? Like how long before you get a body can it be before you're able to do the autopsy? Um, it depends on the case. Uh, in most cases, we like to do the autopsy within 24 hours of the body coming in. So sometimes we simply can't wait for additional information to come in because sometimes that additional information may never come in. So question, is that just because, like you said, of wanting to issue a death certificate or are there are certain tests that you can run on a body that's only about 24 hours old that you start to not be able to run once the body keeps on aging? Um, our concern mostly is with issuing a death certificate and also the decomposition of a body, even if it's kept within a, a cold room or a cooler. Uh, there are limits to how long you can keep a body. Right. So you're saying, obviously, for the sake of a funeral or something like that. Exactly. The death certificate is very important because nothing can happen until... We issue a death certificate. Disposition of a body is important to the family, of course. So we like to get that done as soon as possible. So to the to the question about like tests and um, if any of that changes the amount of, you know, with more time passing, just in general, what kinds of tests are you able to run on a dead body versus a live body? Um, we can run toxicology on a dead body. It's still a decent representation of, you know, the state of the body when, it, when the person died. Uh, if a person has been in the hospital for like a week, for example, and you maybe they went in for a suspected overdose and they've been treated in the hospital, things have cleared their system, that's when we can't really run toxicology on a post-mortem specimen because that drug has cleared their system, so to speak. So right. if they were and, alive, yeah, exactly. Good point. Maybe their liver that, was still working and yeah. 
Exactly. So that's when you can't really compare alive versus dead um, for toxicology. But for most other things, we, we can do a very good panel for drugs on someone who's dead. Okay, interesting. How about other, uh, like not toxicology, but just other types of blood tests and stuff in general? Are you able to run those? Uh, are there any that you're not able to run? And what would we need? Like, what what sorts of tests are useful to you? For most things, it's you know the run of the mill drugs, the narcotics, and speed, and and other things that we're all familiar with. Um, people who huff, for example, who inhale a keyboard cleaner and things like that, those clear the body very quickly. So there's really only a small time window where it's useful to do tests on that. Sometimes we rely purely on circumstance to call that death, you know, an accidental in, you know, inhalation of whatever. If they're gripping keyboard cleaners when they died and they're, they're still in their hands, for example, and they're known to be uh, a huffer, then that's when we can attribute to that. Um, otherwise, there are just some things that you, you won't be able to detect. But things like heavy metals, um, those can be detectable. Most significant drugs are. Okay, okay. Um, all right, so let's go ahead and talk about the, um, the autopsy in general. So where do you start on the body? Do you always start in the same place? Uh, just take us through an autopsy. So the goal of the autopsy is to, number one, figure out a cause of death. And number two, to figure out a manner of death. I don't know if Deneen touched on those. Yeah, definitely. With you. So the first thing that we do is an external examination of the body. That's just looking at the surface from head to toe. Every ex medical examiner does this differently, but I start from the head work all the way down, documenting hair color, uh, the texture of the hair, whether the roots are the same color as the rest of the hair, looking at the eyes. Is there anything, any uh, bleeding in the eyes, looking into the nostrils, ears, mouth, everything. Does the person have dentures? Do they have teeth? Uh, looking at the neck, looking at their chest, are there any masses? Are there any injuries that I can see on the surface of the body? all the way down to the toes. And so, believe it sorry, or not... Because a right, lot of what you just said is very benign, or sounds very benign. So why are we wanting to know these things? Well, some of these external exams aren't benign because sometimes you see a stab wound. Or sometimes you say, oh, look, there's a gunshot wound here. Typically, you'd know this before you start your exam. But uh, not every external exam is unremarkable. Um, for example, we look at um, any bruises or scrapes on the body, any lacerations, uh, particularly with traffic fatalities. There are a lot of injuries on the surface. You know, we can see, was this person wearing a seatbelt? Sometimes you can see an abrasion across the chest that can tell you, was this person the driver or the passenger? What bones are broken? Sometimes you have people who are missing limbs. 
from being hit by trains. So all that, yeah. So all that makes total sense. Of course, I guess I more mean like the uh, does the does the patient have or does the body have um, dentures or real teeth? Does the body have um, dyed roots or natural roots in their hair? Um, <laughs> like, do are those just part of the job, or is there a reason that we need to know these things? Part of it is for identification too. Some people have a pretty unique tattoo. And especially if they're a John Doe and nobody has identified them yet, mm, we point. can document these things. And maybe they have a police record. Maybe a photograph was taken of that tattoo and they can match up. Okay, cool, cool. All right, so we, we've looked over the whole body. We've made it down mm-hmm. to the uh, to the toes. What are, what are we looking at next? What are we looking Well, in the toes, believe it or not, people inject drugs in between their toes. Sometimes, and that's the only place they inject, so you can't really ignore the toes either. Okay, yeah, so yeah. After the, after we look at the pattern of what we call lividity, which is pooling of the blood after the person dies, whether it's consistent with the position that they were found. Somebody says somebody was found face down on the floor. The lividity pattern is actually on their back. That suggests to us that the body was moved. Yeah, so talking lividity. I love it. We learned about this from Deneen and the pooling of blood oh, and stuff. So I never heard that word already. ever before, and now it's like one of my favorite words, but I never get a chance to use it, though. <laughs> you should try to integrate it into your next cocktail party. Yeah, yeah, for sure. How rigid the body was. It gives a rough time frame of when the person died, just to make, just to make things consistent with the history that we're given. So that's an external examination, and it can be very elaborate. In most cases in forensic pathology, the external examination is more important than the internal examination. Hmm. Because you're documenting in, documenting injuries, which at a medical examiner's office is very important. Outside of a medical examiner's office, not so important. Yeah. So the next you you mean in Sorry. terms of because later on we're going to try to let's say determine cause of death and was this uh suicide, homicide, this, that. So any little markings on a body are are very good clues towards those things. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um it can make the difference between a homicide and a suicide. Uh there there are many cases where you know the external examination is is critical in determining a cause and manner of death. Okay, makes sense. So now we're about to open the body up. First of all, do you always open the body up at the same place first, or do you just go directly to, let's say there was like a gunshot wound on the lower back, do you just immediately go to where that gunshot wound was? (laughs) That's a good question. It depends. The short answer is that you should probably do the autopsy the same way every time. That is, there's a standardized way of doing it. Um, Sometimes you've got law enforcement present and they want you to fish out that bullet right away, but you sort of have to be patient and they understand. So usually you start with a Y-shaped incision over the surface of the body, over the chest that goes down all the way down the abdomen. And then you start to reflect the skin back. You remove the chest plate, which has the sternum and part of the anterior ribs. And by this point, you've pretty much exposed all of the internal organs. So this is what we call the classic Y-shaped incision. And the body uh, organs get removed either as a whole or one by one. 
depending on the style of the medical examiner. The organs get sliced and examined. Um, for example, the liver gets sliced up like you would a loaf of bread. Uh, the stomach gets opened up. Some people open the entire bowel. Um, and the organs get inspected. They get weighed. There's a technician who usually helps with this. I'm really and interested to hear you say some people do it this way, some people do it that way. So you, you do have a little bit of flexibility in how you can be doing this. Absolutely. There are infinite ways to do an autopsy. Um, nowadays, I think most people follow a general standard. But you know, back in the day, people got very creative, especially in how you slice the heart open. I've seen four or five different ways that people do this. It sort of depends on how you were trained, what you're comfortable with. As long as you answer the question at the end of the day and are able to figure out a cause of death and manner of death, you're fine. But, for example, there are medical examiners who take out all of the organs at once and then do the dissection at the table, whereas some like to take them out piece by piece. So the liver, you know, the liver and then the kidneys and then the lungs and then the heart separately. Mm -hmm. And then they examine the individual organs at the table. Okay. So uh, we take specimens for toxicology. Obviously, we try to get blood. Sometimes it's not easy because maybe the person bled to death. So it's hard to get blood. We have backups. Things like the liver can tell something about what kind of drugs the, the body was processing at the time that they died. Um, the Sorry, th this, is a, this is a really morbid question, but what does a body look like when it's bled to death? The organs are very pale. Uh, the kidneys, actually, you can tell they have a pinkish tone to them, whereas they would normally have like a red-purplish color. Um, you can tell also by the circumstances you'd know whether they did or did not. And it, frankly, it's hard to get blood from someone who's exsanguinated. Yeah, and what, what, just on the outside, like, would their skin, like, crinkle up a whole bunch and, like, wrinkle up a bunch or no? Not necessarily. You may not necessarily be able to tell that from the outside. Okay. They may appear pale. Yeah, yeah, I would imagine. All right, cool. Sorry for the interruption. Keep, t keep taking us through this. Yeah, no problem. Um, the tongue and the neck get taken out as well. Uh, and this may make some of your male audience cringe, but we remove the testicles as well. Mm. <laughs> and then the brain gets removed and examined and weighed like the other organs. So that, in essence, is an autopsy. Okay, um, basically just piece by piece, organ by organ, taking the body apart. Exactly. And then once the organs have been examined, weighed, sliced, they get placed back into a bag and then back into the body cavity. And then someone roughly sews the skin back and replaces the skull cap and sews the scalp back. And they either get released to the funeral home or they're kept in the morgue for further investigation. Wait, that's someone's job? Like, that's all they do is re-sew up bodies? Well, there are technicians who do that. It's not their only job. They do 
quite a bit during the autopsy, processing a body when it first comes in. But yes, that is one of their jobs. Interesting. Or any one of us can do that too. Um, you know, any of the medical examiners can do that as well. Yeah, so you guys have your own tech, the same way that a surgeon would have a tech in, in the OR. Kind of. The morgue is like an operating room. Yeah, you've got definitely. a person on the table, you've got lights on them, and we have the same instruments as a surgeon would. We just don't have to worry about saving anyone's life or keeping a sterile field. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's, it's anything but sterile in a morgue. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, would, I would have to imagine. We also save small snippets of every organ in a jar in formaldehyde, just in case we need to revisit that or look at it more closely. Wow. Tell me about a time, please, that you've experienced this <laughs> where you have had to go back and revisit someone's organs. Well, I've never had to do that personally, but let's take, for example, a case where you know, a person died um, suspiciously. They didn't have any medical medical history, an autopsy was performed, and we didn't see anything uh, waiting for toxicology to come back. And then let's say a, a neighbor calls and says, you know what, I think, I think this guy's wife poisoned him with antifreeze, put it in his Gatorade. Well, there are some things actually that you could see in the kidney that might suggest that, or at least support the idea that this person was poisoned by ethylene glycol, which is the ingredient in antifreeze. It's deadly. So we could go back to this, what we call our stock jar, pull out that piece of kidney, um, put it in a little cassette, send it off to a laboratory. They'll make a glass slide from that, and then we can look at it under the microscope. And for example, in a case of antifreeze poisoning, um, sometimes you can see crystals in the kidneys. Why so would that, that have not been case. noticed before? You wouldn't be able to see those crystals just with the naked eye. And you wouldn't necessarily be looking for that if you didn't have that history or somebody didn't come forward and say that they suspected it. Yeah, right. I guess now that I think about it, if you go to a place like LabCorp to get blood drawn or something and you look at the like menu that they give you of things that they can test you for, it's like 10,000 things that you can go there and get tested at any given time. So I guess it makes sense that they can't just test every single organ for every single thing in the world. Oh, no, absolutely not. Our panel for toxicology is, it's, it's pretty good and extensive, but it doesn't test for everything. There are some things where we have to be told to test for or suspect in order for us to, you know, send out for. So if, if we don't know about it, we may never send out for it. How long are you keeping these jars with people's organs in them? every office has a different time limit um up to a year years because we we like to err on the side of caution um the storage becomes a problem as you can imagine oh yeah but there's always that possibility that you may need to go back and look at a heart for example um, maybe you want to confirm that somebody has uh, hypertensive heart disease. Not every examiner's office will take pieces to look at under the microscope. Our office looks at heart, liver, and lung just as a matter of course under the microscope, but not all offices do. So having that stock jar is kind of a safety measure in case you do want to go back. Yeah. All right. So Pilu, so far, everything sounds very, very straightforward. 
So if you could tell us about a time or a story where things were not very straightforward or what are like weird kind of monkey wrenches in this whole situation where, um, yeah, like things just get like more difficult as you're examining a body or something strange comes up that leads to a lot more examination on your part. Well, I can tell you that bruises aren't always apparent on the surface. So sometimes when you're reflecting the scalp off of someone, you start to see bruises underneath, and that makes you concerned. So there have been times when medical examiners start an examination thinking there was no trauma to the body, and then suddenly see that there are bruises on the head, for example, and that might prompt them to think that you know something was amiss or foul play. Um, you never know what you're going to find in the body, so you can go in and then all of a sudden see a bunch of injuries internally that you never would have seen externally, and that happens too. Um, trying to think of some cases. Uh, what what kind of cases in particular? Uh, were you thinking of? I don't know. I was hoping that you would just like drop some bomb on me and blow my mind. <laughs> hmm. I don't know. Because, um, like, I guess I, I'm thinking of things like, uh, you know, obviously, if if some guy comes in with a bullet wound, you're like, "Yep, there's a bullet right here. He was shot." And everyone, everyone like claps and it's like, yeah, but it's just what we thought. Like I, I'm looking for almost like the antithesis of that where it's like, they don't know and you don't know. And you're just like going back and forth and yeah. Well, a lot of natural deaths are that way. Uh, people will come in and you don't have any history. You go in there and you see this, you know, a whopping heart attack. Uh, their heart has basically ruptured. Uh, they had a blood clot that went to their lungs, and that's how they died. Uh, people have bleeds in their brain that you never would have suspected. Young people. Um, trying to think of something that would blow your mind. Well, how about <laughs> this? What happens when you're looking at someone and it looks like there's multiple causes of death? First of all, what's even stated if there's multiple causes of death? But... Two, what if the the different causes of death are very different things? Like there looks like there's a lot of trauma on the body and the person overdosed on drugs. It's like, well, was this person kind of overdosing, but they got beaten to death? Or did they actually overdose and they happened to get in a fight recently? <laughs> That's an excellent question. That's the, Those are the cases that we really hate. Because sometimes you can't state one cause of death. And that's where the word undetermined comes in. It's kind of like a four-letter word. We try to avoid it. But it's basically saying, I'm not sure. Could this have been a beating? But then he also overdosed at the same time. Sometimes you just can't tell. Um, Sometimes one thing trumps another. If you're in a motor vehicle accident and you've got multiple injuries, the question sometimes is which of the injuries was actually the fatal one. Yeah. Usually stuff in the head and neck will be your fatal injury. Even if you have 
whopping injuries in the heart and other places. The head and neck generally trumps everything, but you know there are exceptions. Sometimes people have injuries that look very bad, but there's very little bleeding in that area. Um, and then you look in another place and you find a more compelling reason um, for their cause of death. And so that's what you attribute the death to. Interesting. So but, other than multiple kind of causes of death like that, what sorts of things would make it difficult to determine someone's cause of death? Well, difficult ones are decomposed bodies because you're very limited in your external examination. There's only so much you can see if a body is bloated and discolored. You're not going to be able to see injuries that well. So with a decomposed body, we have to do full body x-rays because guess what? You might be surprised there's a bullet somewhere in their head that you didn't see from an external exam. There could be a fragment of a, a knife blade sticking somewhere in their spine that you didn't see. Um, so those are tough. Skeletonized bodies are tough because you have really nothing to go on except for the bones. So that's when we just try to exclude things like trauma. Um, we, we just look to see that there's no gunshot wounds through the bones. There's no stab wounds through the bones. And sometimes we call our anthropology people and they have to come and process those bones for us. Hmm. So those, those are the difficult cases. And of course, after an autopsy, you find nothing. You can't find anything wrong with this person. Toxicology comes back and it's all negative. Those are the tough cases. So then it just gets an unknown. Like you were saying that that's it. Like end of the road. You just put unknown on it and that's it. We, we do undetermined. If we really are hard pressed, I mean, that's sort of where we have to go. Man, that's got to be so frustrating. It is very frustrating. Um, and especially when in cases of babies who die in the crib, you know, what we used to call SIDS, a lot of medical examiners are now uh, not using that term anymore and calling those types of deaths undetermined, which makes it hard on families because they're used to the term SIDS or sudden infant death syndrome. And they're confused, like, what does undetermined mean? Well, we sort of have to tell them it's sort of like what you know as SIDS. And so um, that's often the case with babies who die, uh, who have no trauma. So those are the tough cases. So, Pilou, as you're going over this, I realized something you did not mention, which is just like throwing the body through an MRI or a CAT scan or something like that. Why is that not done? I feel like that would make your job so much easier. Well, some places are equipped with a CT scan where they can scan a body. Um, cost is really probably the real reason why not every medical examiner's office doesn't have that technology. Um, it's expensive. You have to have special expertise to read it. Yeah. So um, like and, for you, if a patient had a brain aneurysm, you need to actually find the brain or, or like, is it pretty obvious when a patient had a brain aneurysm or do you need it to like track it down? Well, if they didn't make it to a hospital and never got imaged, because some people will have an aneurysm, make it to the hospital, but they're already flatline by the time they get there. There's no time to do imaging. The hospital's not going to use their resources to do imaging on a dead person. So that will come to us. 
we can sort of see on an x-ray if there's something obvious and really, you know, blaring, but we really need to go in and confirm it. And I would, I would tell you that imaging is a great technology, but nothing compares to actually seeing it. Uh, there's no substitute for direct visualization yeah. of a disease process or a problem. It trumps everything. Good because old. imaging imaging is sort of a substitute when you can't go in there. But we have full access. We're not worried. Uh, we can take all day to do an examination. We can go literally anywhere we want in the body without worrying. And so our examination is much better than any imaging technology. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you mentioned when we were talking before the interview that sometimes it can take weeks to be able to finalize the cause of death. Um, what do you mean exactly when you say, quote unquote, finalizing the cause of death? And then, yeah, why, why does it take weeks if usually you're trying to, in one day, um, get a death certificate out? I get this question a lot from family and friends who've had loved ones die. Say this person died, went to a medical examiner's office. I just can't understand why they told me that the autopsy was finished, but it will take eight to 12 weeks for the autopsy report to be finalized. Well, most of that is because, number one, the medical examiner has to wait for things to come back. Toxicology results can take a long time, depending on whether something is found in the body. If a screen is positive, then they have to go and quantify that drug. That takes a while, and that can take up, you know, months. And the other thing is waiting if you took tissue to be made into slides to look at under the microscope. That takes time to come back to. So a conservative estimate for an autopsy that's complicated, um, 8 to 12 weeks, some autopsies can take up to half a year to be finalized. Oh my God. And you, when you say finalized, does, does that imply uh, giving a death certificate to the family? Like you can't uh, give a death certificate before that? That's a good question. After the autopsy is done, a death certificate is issued no matter what. Whatever you're waiting on, it doesn't matter. What that death certificate might say under cause of death is a word like pending or deferred, meaning we're waiting for results. Here's your death certificate, but we don't have a clear cause or manner of death yet. But if you wait 8 to 12 weeks, we'll issue you a new death certificate with a cause and manner of death. Meanwhile, of course, we're going to release the body to you, but you'll have to wait for the final death certificate and you'll have to wait for the, the autopsy report. Okay, okay. Um, all right, Pilu, I'm hoping that you have an awesome answer to this. Which is, have you ever changed the perceived cause of death on a case? Like, has a body come to you? People think, oh, you know, it's probably a suicide because this, this, this. And then you're like, aha, it's not a suicide because of this, <laughs> this, and this. I personally haven't. So sadly, I can't give you an awesome story from my own personal well, experience. I, I appreciate you at least but... not just making one up immediately. <laughs> <laughs> But cases have happened where somebody says, oh, this looks like a suicide, and it turns out to be a homicide. And there's some things you can see on the body that would suggest that 
the gunshot wound or whatever it is could not have been self-inflicted. Now, hopefully the police or whoever investigated this case to begin with um, has given you enough information to suggest whether it's a homicide or a suicide, but sometimes it's not clear, especially with decomposed bodies, it's hard to tell. But, but for example, um, there's a pattern uh, of injuries on a gunshot wound that sort of gives you an estimate of how close the barrel of the gun was in relationship to the person. So if you don't see some of those signs that implies that it's a close range or an intermediate range gunshot wound, then you start to suspect that, you know, maybe this was not self-inflicted. And that can happen. Um, there's cases where you think something is an obvious natural death. Somebody's 90 years old. They don't have any medical history. There's nothing in their social history that's remarkable. And then you get the toxicology report back. And guess what? Grandpa was, you know, hitting cocaine or whatever. Grandpa, so, typical grandpa. Yeah, you gotta, you, you can't always assume that just because of someone's age, they're not using illicit substances. So yeah, give it up to grandpa. <laughs> he was having a good time. <laughs> yeah, man, went out with the bang for sure. Um, so let's talk about you a little bit, Pilu. So do you just like bump a ton of music the whole time that you're in there? <laughs> who told you that <laughs> i just what else are you gonna do you know well some people don't like music i personally love music we play 80s in our morgue yeah love that and uh yeah so somebody is usually the dj for the day and it's probably the most senior technician on staff so we play music um I like to listen to other people's music, too. I encourage people to introduce me to music. Uh, there's a lot of country fans. And yes, detectives will come for some homicide cases, and, and they'll sing along with us, too. So it's, uh, it's a pretty laid-back environment, but we're serious when we need to be. Yeah, of course. Um, all right, next question for you. Do you ever talk to the bodies? Like, when no one else is around, obviously? Sometimes I talk to them when other people are around, too. <laughs> <laughs> Usually it's questions. Questions for them. Um, if they committed suicide, I, usually I say, like, why did you do this? They didn't leave a note. I always wonder why. Sometimes I tell them, you know, nice tattoo, you know, because sometimes people have great tattoos. Do you ever try to ask them for, like, life advice or just tell them about, like, the date that you were on the night before or something? <laughs> No, I, I try not to burden the decedent with that kind of stuff. <laughs> They've suffered enough. Yeah, they have enough problems for sure. No, the, the autopsy technicians usually bear the brunt of that. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. That sounds good. Um, why don't you tell us what your favorite part about the job is, Pilu? Well, it's a job that has a lot of predictability because you, you kind of do the autopsy the same way every time. But then there's that element of uncertainty. You don't know what kind of case you're going to get the next day. So, so it's comfortable in the way that you, you kind of know what you're going to do, but you don't know what the outcome is going to be, what kind of decedent's going to come through the morgue. Um, most doctors get their caseload for the day from, you know, some electronic medical system or their nurses tell them what, you know, who's coming overnight. I mean, I, we read the news. 
to see, oh, what shooting went on last night? You know, who's going to roll in? Was there an accident on the Interstate 75 that I need to be worrying about? So it's kind of a cool job in that sense. That and is like that take, makes it almost the coolest job in that sense. I never really thought about is. that before, but it is. The, I mean, uh, don't sometimes it's an occupational hazard. Some people don't even want to listen to the eleven o'clock news. They're like, <laughs> I don't want to know beforehand. I'll just deal with it when I get there. Um, and then some people are very curious. You know, a shooting happened at a strip club last night. Did anyone die? Who got taken to the hospital? Are they going to make it? You know, are they going to be our case? Some people like to know. And we get to hang out with um, law enforcement. So I don't know of any other medical job where you've got people toting guns walking around you and, you know, with badges and stuff. So it's it's kind of cool. We get to interact with them. And it's like the exact type of job that you can keep for a lifetime and not get tired of because of what you said. Like a lot of a lot of jobs, you have to keep on increasing the level of difficulty or whatever it is otherwise you just get freaking bored or burned out or this or that but like you said it's like you get to have this full command over your job where you get more and more skilled at doing it and like doing things your own way but at no point does it even have the opportunity to be redundant or boring because every day i mean it's like being a professional treasure hunter or something you know it's like you never know what tomorrow is going to bring Yes, there are people working as medical examiners well past retirement age. And the only restriction is that you can stand at the autopsy table and physically do the job. And there, you can work well into your 80s, even if you're healthy enough to do it. Uh, people die in the most creative ways. And the experienced medical examiners that I work with, they thought they've seen it all and they still are shocked by what they see. There are some tedious aspects to the job. There's paperwork involved. Um, there's testifying in court that some people dislike. But, you know, most of the time, people like the job. Um, people transition from other fields in medicine to medical examiner work. And uh, they seem to be happy in, in the job that they do, considering, uh, you know, the the training that goes into it. Um, a lot of other specialties within medicine require a lot of years of fellowship training, but this one only requires one year after a residency. And do and you go so, to the same residency as people that are going on to become physicians or is it a fully different residency path? The residency is in a specialty of medicine called pathology. And that requires three to four years, depending. Um, so someone go- coming from medical school is, is faced with, you know, a choice. Do they want to go into, you know, there's infinite choices, medicine, for example, or surgery or radiology. Pathology is, is one option. So people go into that path and that path will lead you to forensic pathology. Okay. If you so choose. So pathology is kind of the redheaded stepchild of medicine because we don't typically deal with um, patients or treat patients. It's more diagnosing diseases. Uh, so it's not a field that people like to go into because most people go into medicine to you know, help cure patients and interact with patients. Pathology and sometimes radiology are considered you know, the diagnostic portions of medicine where they're not, we're not treating people. Yeah. We're just diagnosing disease. It's like the path then, for the introvert. 
Exactly. It's a path for the introvert and you get to sit alone in, you know, in a room and not have to deal with anyone crying or suffering, you know, and it's, it's a good path for most people. And who and do you work a, for, Pilou? Do you work for the county, for the state, for the city? Well, that's a good question. Uh, some medical examiner's offices are run by the county. Uh, some are private. They get funding from the county, but they're privately owned. Um, so there's there's a variety. Okay. And what yeah. does the pay look like for a medical examiner? Uh, now you've hit on why some people don't like to go into forensic pathology, which is the pay. Um, it averages about one hundred fifty to two hundred thousand dollars a year, uh, which I mean I think to most people that's pretty good. Um, within medicine, it's kind of on the lower side. Well, I mean, the thing about within medicine is though everyone else just keeps getting lower and lower and lower. Like that's honestly not that bad now. I mean. 15 years ago compared to other physicians, that was, that's not good. But I mean, nowadays compared to other physicians, that's not bad at all. Yeah. And we don't have to deal with malpractice insurance. Totally. Any of the BS. We don't have to deal with exactly. And uh, for the hours, it's not bad. It's an, it's a nine to five job for the most part. Yeah. I mean, yeah. How can, (laughs) yeah. How could you not (laughs) sign off on that as a, uh, as a aspiring physician? I mean, unless like you said, if you really want to be a, um, work with people, but I mean, yeah, if you, if you go into another line of medicine and become a different type of surgeon, let's say you're making 260, 270. So is that extra like $80,000 worth the fact that you have to run your own business, like have a private practice that is a business that you now own, like have, uh, employees at your office have malpractice insurance, probably working like 11 hour days on a regular basis, you know, um, compared to you. It's, I mean, I, I, that's like not even a choice to me. Like you, you have the much sweeter deal. I hear you. It's a very family friendly subspecialty. There, there are offices where the medical examiner is required to go to scenes, maybe in the middle of the night. Oh, those don't happen that frequently. And some offices, the medical examiners don't go to scenes at all. The investigators go to every scene, even homicide scenes. So if you happen to work in an office that doesn't require you to even leave your house unless you're working your nine to five, then it's it's a pretty sweet job. Yeah, definitely. But some people happen to like going to scenes. They think it's cool and they can learn a lot from going to scenes and hanging out with the crime scene investigation people, talking to cops at the scene. So for some people, it's it's a plus for them. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. All right, Pilou. Well, I'm going to go ahead and not do the typical advice piece that I would do because uh, obviously the advice for this is to you know go to medical school and, and go down the path for becoming a, uh, a medical examiner. But um, I would like to leave off with his has being a medical examiner and working with dead bodies a bunch either changed your view of death or has it changed your view of life at all? I think working in this field has made me appreciate the extent to which people suffer. Um, I guess I'm speaking specifically about people who take their own lives. Um, you, You do appreciate once you see what people do to themselves and the violence they inflict on themselves, just how much suffering they had while they were alive. 
because some of the ways that people take their own lives can be so dramatic. And um, just, you know, and then on a lighter note, um, it sort of made me wonder, you know, how, how will I leave this world? You know, will, will I be in my bed and die in my sleep and someone from my workplace doesn't hear from me? in a couple of days and calls police and I'm found in my bed and you know, there's an investigator snooping around my house, looking in my fridge, looking for medication. You know, so I guess um, in that sense, I just try to keep my, my house or apartment tidy. <laughs> <'cause> you never <laughs> know. Yeah, for it's sure. It's like wearing clean underwear kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and it, it just sort of makes you appreciate that you can go at any time, a stray bullet. I mean, it's kind of cliche, but it's true. Yeah, I I mean, to touch on both the things that you just said, the first thing, obviously, very sad, but very good to have a reminder like that of just, you know, being as kind as you can to everyone every minute of every day because you have no idea what the hell that person's going through, you know, um, oh, yeah. and how you might be able to help and change that for them. Um, but yeah, to the, to the more light note, you now have me thinking, and, and obvious, I'm sure uh, medical examiners are, are really good at this already, but you have me thinking that I have to be ready for when I'm going to die. Like, I definitely need to, like, dye my hair pink when I'm, like, 90 and, like, you know, just have, like, uh, <laughs> some really cool markings, like, all over my body and stuff. Um, oh, just yeah. make, like, a really good, like, puzzle for the medical examiner <laughs> in the event that my body gets brought to a medical examiner. Well, if you have the luxury of preparing your own death, um, yeah, I suggest that you, you just go gotta stay out. ready, Pilou. It's not like you're. It's <laughs> not like you're ready like that day, but you stay ready for like this whole time window. If you really want to confuse a medical investigator and a medical examiner's office, you can plant weird stuff in your apartment and weird pills and things like that, and and leave notes that make no sense, and so everyone's confused. Yes, you could do that dye your hair, um, put things on your toes. We, you know, we're going to look at it. <laughs> See, and I said, we weren't <laughs> going to leave off with any advice, but that's like great advice to leave <laughs> off with is just how to totally F with the medical examiner's office. when <laughs> you pass away. That's good. I'm going to regret this. <laughs> Pilu, thank you so much for coming on the show. This is so interesting. Well, thanks so much. Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode with Pilou. If you did enjoy the episode with Pilou, I would appreciate it so much if you checked out my Patreon page and considered donating to help support the show and help keep episodes like this one being made. It is at patreon.com slash half hour intern and I will be raffling away two shirts to the Patreon um, supporters as soon as I hit 15 Patreon supporters, which we're getting really close to. So very soon I'll be raffling away two shirts. So if you give right now, there's a chance that you will get a free t-shirt out of it. So um, yeah, any support is greatly appreciated. Thanks so much for listening.